Hello to everyone listening and welcome to Work With Purpose, a podcast about public service in Australia. I'm Gordon DeBrower and I'm the uh, president of IPA National. I'm here in Canberra on Ngunnawal country and I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners, uh, past, present and future. And I think for various listeners around the country, acknowledge your uh, Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander uh, traditional owners as well. I'm really delighted to talk today in this national perspective with uh, Jody Ryan, who's Chief Executive of the Northern Territory Government's Department of the Chief Minister. Jody was appointed CEO of the Department of Chief Minister in December 2016, uh, so that's, that's a fair while in that job, and was previously uh, the Northern Territory Under Treasurer. She began work with the Northern Territory Government as a grad in 1992 and worked mostly in Treasury uh, and has a range of other positions, uh, including as a member of the board uh, of ANZOG. Welcome, Jody. Thank you, Gordon. It's great to have you here. Um, I, I thought we might go through some issues around uh, public or service delivery, the public sector and the importance of relationships, but we might start actually with a, an eight-month retrospective on the <laughs> pandemic and really what are, you, what are the lessons you take out of the past eight months? Oh, there are probably so many lessons. Um, one lesson is let's just get 2020 over and done with. It's been a really tough year for everybody. I think one of the lessons we've really learned is that um, working together, we're actually a much better we're much better at delivering than working separately. And I'm not just talking about agencies across lines, I'm talking about agencies, non-government organisations, private sector, jurisdictions. I think we've all been able to prove that as a collective we can deliver so much more than we can individually. I think some of the other lessons I've learnt is around engaging with risk. So we've made a lot of decisions in a very short time frame, and kind of decisions that pre-COVID might have taken months. You know, you would have had someone working up a policy and someone thinking about the policy and it going to cabinet and being considered and being released, maybe consulting for a while. What we've seen through COVID is we've had issues in front of us. We've had to make a decision. We've made the decision. Sometimes we've made mistakes. We've corrected those mistakes and we've moved on. And I think a big lesson from that is that the public sector needs to be a lot more risk averse, noting that we've got a lot of integrity agencies watching what we're doing. So it's not um, uh, being fraudulent or behaving mischievously or, or being lax about what we do, but it's about understanding that there is risk in everything we do. You can't mitigate for 100% of things that could go wrong. So what's the appropriate risk appetite we should be taking? And we're actually looking in the territory now developing a whole of government risk appetite to keep make sure we keep moving this forward. I think the other thing I've learnt is around people. So people who you wouldn't expect to have stepped up incredibly in the public sector and just got on with the job of getting it done. We've moved them into jobs that out of their comfort zone, they've delivered. And I think what I've learnt from that is people actually need a real goal and to be able to see that they're making a difference. So the goal that we had was keeping Territorians safe. We've got a very large, vulnerable population and every single one of us wanted to make sure that COVID, firstly, try not to let it into the Territory and if it got into the Territory, how do we protect our vulnerable communities? That's great. Uh, and uh, on that risk appetite, Jody, I think everyone will be really interested in seeing how you articulate mm. that or how the government does. 
it's really important. Uh, yep. Can you talk a little bit about, I mean, one thing about risk, and, and I think the public has actually been a lot more tolerant of risk-taking and, and frankly expects governments and the public service mm. to take risk. But how has it meant, uh, what has it meant for recognising risk, but also when something goes wrong, that you can change and you don't blame people? So I think in the government it's been good. We, we've recognised we've done things quickly. If people make a mistake, you know, there's usually a slight reaction about why did we do it that way or why did someone do it that way, but we've moved on very quickly and said, OK, we've made a mistake, how do we fix it, how do we move forward? I think there's still some, you know, some in the public who are happy to slam any kind of decisions you make, but I think generally the public have been happy that the government's just got on and made decisions, recognised that you're never going to keep all of the people happy all of the time, but we've been decisive, we've acted, we've kept a very clear goal, and the Chief Minister has said this over and over again, saving lives and saving jobs. Two clear goals. First of all, keep people healthy. Second of all, try and keep the economy going. But number one priority was the health. And I do think the public recognise, generally, not all, but generally recognise that that's been our goal and we've done that to the extent that we can. Yeah, that's great. Uh, and I, I think part of that seems to be that uh, people acknowledge if something goes wrong, it's not shirking responsibility for it. Yeah. It's accepting it, but frankly, it's learning really quickly and changing systems. Absolutely. So. Yeah. I, I might uh, start on service delivery and, and any reflections you've got around what's really worked on that. Uh, I mean, the whole purpose of government is actually the, to protect yes. and improve people's lives. So mm -hmm. can you talk a bit about how service delivery changed or the, the mechanisms by which you operated that? I, I think, I mean, for the church, we were obviously very lucky. We had very few um, cases early on. We had no community transmission. But what we did early on... And we've been focusing, we have been switching our focus and trying to change a culture to more of a customer focus culture in the public sector generally pre-COVID. So, so not just thinking about us delivering services for Territorians, but thinking about what Territorians need from us and then how do we deliver that. Um, so we had started that work and it was going a bit, you know, probably at a public sector pace. We ramped that up substantially with COVID. You know, we, we changed IT systems so that front-facing systems were easy to use. We cut red tape in a whole range of areas that previously would have taken months to do. We made sure that we were putting people first, so looking at how we delivered our services. Were they the right services to be delivering? And, and how do we make sure that um, we're helping people, not hindering people, at a time when they're already really stressed? You know, everyone was going through a lot, whether it was health, worrying about their health, worrying about their business. How could we alleviate some of that stress, not add to it? How did you uh, how did you talk to communities uh, and and the community in general around that change, and explain and talk to them about that? So, I think that's that's probably another lesson we learned. We 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 tried to over communicate. So we were putting out messages regularly. We set up a website, a specific coronavirus website, within a weekend right back in um, March, and we updated that regularly. We made it make, kept making sure that it was still easy to use. We were putting messages out. We've got a... We're, we're somewhat ahead of the game in the Territory is that people are used to, in a disaster, they're used to actually going to a particular website to check on the facts and check where things are at. So we use that website as a platform. 
So people are used to, you know, cyclones are coming, you're checking all the time. In this instance, it's what are the latest facts on coronavirus. So we had the uh, website, we had, uh, you know, the usual social media, uh, Facebook. We had our ministers out in media relatively regularly. But the thing we did do was we set up very quickly a regional and remote task force because while it's easier to communicate in our big towns, we needed to communicate regularly with the Aboriginal controlled sector, so health organisations, non-government organisations. And that task force has been now meeting weekly since the middle of March and is still continuing. And it's just constant communication. It's updates on where we're at, what we're thinking of doing, getting feedback, um, listening to concerns and then trying to deal with them. And recognise that we can't always resolve those concerns, but at least they know we've thought about it, considered it and come back with a response. I think we, we translated a lot of our messages into Indigenous languages and have been updating those messages regularly. We've been working with Indigenous um, radio stations. So we've just really tried to over-communicate. You know, you'll still miss people, but I'd rather tell someone the same thing twice than not tell someone anything. Yeah, it's really interesting how uh, a jurisdiction's history and sometimes the recent history or its practices can really help or or hinder dealing with a pandemic or this sort of crisis. And Mm -hmm. when you've got um, a bit of muscle memory uh, in your system and then, frankly, when the public are engaged, that's really interesting that uh, the history of or that that constant practice of dealing with events. And I think we were the first jurisdiction to set up a sort of an emergency operations centre because that's how we act, react in any disaster situation. So we're pretty well rehearsed in terms of cyclones and floods, uh, to some extent bushfires, but mostly around the, the cyclone flood issue. So it, it was stepping it up, but this has been, rather than just being a week or two week response, this is obviously eight months. Mm, exactly. Um, yeah, it was pretty good. It was, it was interesting. I think it's one of those lessons is that people become, are more resilient than they know and they become used to a way of life. So, so we had, um, just as an example, when the first, we took on the first uh, repatriated Australians from Wuhan, right back in February we used what's now our Centre for National Resilience in Howard Springs. And there were a lot of concern about we we're bringing people into the territory that might infect other people. But as soon as they saw that we managed it well, no infection got out, it was controlled, they became um, trusting of us. So then we were able to use it for Diamond Princess, people off the Diamond Princess, and we're now using it, we've used it for our hotspot policy, and we're now using it for repatriated Australians. And people have got used to it and trust us. So I think it's that initial reaction of being unsure and unsafe and then recognising that that um, actually this is okay. We're, we're protecting all, all Australians, not just Territorians. One of the features um, before the pandemic was a deterioration in trust, in, in especially mm-hmm. in government. And the yes. pandemic, at least across Australia and, and for New Zealand, has been quite a radical shifter. What's your own observation of trust in government and trust in oh, government services? It's it's improved 100%. Certainly, I mean, the Territory's a small place. The government, the Lord Territory government's the biggest employer. So we're used to getting a lot of scrutiny from the public. Um, 
but I do think that our the trust has grown exponentially through this process and it's a bit that they expected us to make decisions we made decisions we we, we moved on we um, we responded very quickly around keeping businesses trying to keep businesses allow businesses to survive uh, adapt and then rebound and that was well received um, you know I think the I think the National Cabinet process is probably the best thing, one of the best things that was done, and I, I honestly believe that that's, that National Cabinet structure helped keep Australia one of the safest places in the world in terms of dealing with the pandemic, responding, working together, dismissing political lines and actually working as a team to keep Australia safe. It's been an incredible process to be part of. That's great. I'll come back to that through the conversation as well. Um, just on the service delivery side, just to finish mm -hmm. this bit, uh, what, what are the bits that you're really clear about you want to keep and how do you go about deciding what the changes are that you want to keep, especially around <laughs> technology? Yes. So we've had lots of discussions around this. Um, I think in terms of uh, what we want to keep is on the technology side, so it's not just particularly for the Territory, for us to attend a meeting in Canberra, say, it's two to three days out of our work day, work week um, for, like, a two-, three-hour meeting. By the time you travel, get there, stay, then come back, we've been able to interact much more regularly and more often uh, digitally. Now, sometimes teleconference, but often, you know, by Teams meetings or whatever platform we're using. I think that's something that we'll keep. Um, the other really big benefit is telehealth for us. We've got a lot, we've got 73 remote communities. Not all of them have health clinics. And even when they have health clinics, they might just, they might have nurses and they might not have the specialist doctors on hand. Um, it's been incredible in terms of service delivery for those remote communities, in terms of physical and mental health and wellbeing. And we absolutely keep that. Do you have uh, measures of the improvement to wellbeing or mental health or physical health that come from technology? Uh, can you um, can you actually we, track it? Or? We don't as yet, but health are looking at it, and um, our I think it's Menzies are doing a Menzies research is doing a piece of work around. I think it's Menzies in terms of actually looking at pre and post or pre and during pandemic. I guess we still are, but certainly from a health anecdotal focus is the increase in people actually contacting them to improve their mental and physical well-being is incredible. They're interacting with kids at school on a daily basis, so school kids are able to dial up. Yeah. How did you deal with the uh, the spread or the diffusion of technology? If it uh, So people talk about the digital divide. Not everyone mm. has... Um... No. At, and that is one of the problems. So even communities with with digital capacity don't always it doesn't always work. So and when it drops out, everything drops out. Um, you know, in terms of being able to purchase at the shops, there's no cash. Sometimes there's no cash in the community. They use their card. The digital, you know, technology drops out. That's a problem. Um, we'll be wanting to grow, work with the Commonwealth, and actually grow the the digital spread across the territory. There are many parts of the territory where there's no connection. Yeah. Um, I, I might uh, shift 
to uh, the public sector and how the how the public sector or the public service worked uh, throughout the pandemic. Yep. Have you got any reflections on how that changed uh, the work practices, working from home, focus on outcomes that you mentioned? Yeah. Uh, just starting on the working from home, we didn't see that like other jurisdictions. Our, we don't have the public transport system that other people have. You know, generally you're 10, 15 minutes away from your workplace. People drive. Um, because we didn't have community transmission, we had a lot of people still coming into the office. Anyone who felt vulnerable or was living with vulnerable people stayed home, but we probably only did that for a few months. It's still there as an option, but it's not a lot of take-up anymore. But in terms of um, uh, drive and being willing to do new jobs, different jobs, additional jobs, like some people kept their old job and did, did other things. I mean, we had people answering hotlines you know, never been, never been required to do that before and getting some very irate people on phones and learning quickly on the job how to deal with all of that sort of thing. So I think the, the, the point around knowing that they were doing their bit to keep Territorians safe made a real difference. Yeah. I think it's one of the, uh, one of the really positive changes across many public services is that surge capacity and that that direct experience with the public, actually, who yep. you're there to serve. So, and, and realising that some of the things we do, why they keep us very busy, may not be as important as we once thought they were. I think it's reprioritising what we do. Yes. Um, I wouldn't mind going back to this issue of uh, also uh, the role of team meetings and what that means, especially for dispersed populations. So I've heard it, I think, for Queensland as well, that uh, often the people in the regional parts of a state or a territory, if they're meeting by Zoom or, or Teams, it's face-to-face and they feel a real part of it. So it can actually change the dynamics of distributed workplaces and people's sense of belonging and participation uh, in a big way. Yep, and we've found that too. We've 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 got regional offices in all of our main centres, so we often dial them into meetings, you know, face to face. But they were the only one. Whereas what we're finding now is we're actually getting more people. People are staying rather than coming to a big meeting, when you know when you're trying to keep your physical distancing happening, they stay in their offices and and use the team meetings to dial in. So you're not the only one on the. The video conference, there are a multitude, and it actually seems to be more inclusive that way. Yeah, it's quite different from those old days of in the conference room where you'd be basically yeah. a pixel and you couldn't see yes. a person's face. This yeah. is much more direct. Um, Absolutely. Can I ask, so is there anything around the public service about the impact that you'd like to change? Is it the surge capacity or the things that you're looking to lock in? Um, uh, the, the surge capacity... As, we have done before at a couple of weeks at a time for cyclones and things, but I think the thing with this surge capacity is it's been a long, a long time. I think what I'd like to lock in is is dropping off some of the things that we don't need to be doing. So what are those things that people are in back rooms that they work hard on? Not saying they don't work hard and that they achieve something, but is it really the most important thing for us? Um, I do think we need to be more explicit around uh, people's job 
definitions. So what 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 outcome are they trying to achieve? Rather than just sit there writing a policy paper, what's the end goal that you're actually going to make a difference for and actually help fulfil people better around knowing what they're trying to achieve? How do you uh, go about the dropping of things that really, at the end of the day, don't matter, uh, or if you think they don't matter? Do you do, you do that systematically, or how do you deal with that? How do you? Approach? It's tricky. On on the run, it's just been done naturally. We've we've tried many times before. We've got a tight budget situation. We've tried to say to agencies, "What can you stop doing, so you can do this more, you know, this higher priority thing?" Um, and always, it's, we can't stop doing anything. But I think we've proven that we can. And what I'd like to do is take that forward and get agencies to re-examine what they dropped and then consider whether it stays dropped. And I think that's a piece of work that we do need to do because otherwise things will just get picked up again as as people um, go back to their day jobs or as they get more time. I think uh, it, there's a risk that we'll float back to old habits. Yeah, yeah. Uh, can I ask you uh, then shift on to relationships a bit and... Um, mm-hmm. One of the one of the one of the things in COVID has been the relationship with the community in general. But yeah. can I ask you to reflect on what it meant with the uh, NT has a large Aboriginal population, and that's a big mm-hmm. part of a big part of who the NT is. Yeah. How that relationship evolved, or what you maybe learnt uh, about that relationship. So I think that relationship is much closer now than it was before. We've always engaged with our Aboriginal sector, and I'm talking. Land councils, um, the Aboriginal Medical Service, um, the legal services, various um, non-government organisations, but we've done it on an issues basis. So when there's an issue we've engaged, that issue's resolved, we might have fallen away from our engagement. This engagement's been much broader and much deeper and much more regular. The regional remote task force I spoke about was largely with... um, Aboriginal organisations, and that was keeping people informed, um, hearing their concerns and being able to address those concerns where possible. I think um, that relationship's much stronger now than it was eight months ago, and it's one of those things we absolutely must keep. Do you have ways of measuring that? Um, Probably hadn't turned my mind to that just yet, but I think what we'll be able to... What we'll be able to demonstrate is we'll, there'll be some there's some tricky things we've been dealing with in the territory for very many years, and I do think with with this better relationship we're actually going to take some steps forward and resolve some of those long outstanding issues. And we're making progress on a couple of those things, um, and I'm hoping that that's that's where you'll see the outcomes. Is that everyone trusts everyone a bit more, recognizing that I think people recognise too that we we can't always. Um, meet concerns or deal with concerns, but we can hear them and and at least talk about the two perspectives. We don't all have to agree all the time. And I think that's the other part is that everyone expects to come to some agreement. Sometimes you agree to disagree, but you actually have a strong enough relationship that you can still keep moving forward and working together. That's the important part. Thanks. Uh, you mentioned uh, National Cabinet before, so probably one mm. of the relationships that really matters is that the relationships across the Federation between the Commonwealth and states and territories. Can you reflect a bit more on how that relationship evolved and what your perceptions are around that? You, you said National Cabinet was one of the best things done. 
I, I think so. So it was done very quickly. It was We had our last COAG meeting um, mid-March in Sydney and um, it was formed on the back of that meeting at that meeting and then we all went back to our jurisdictions and had our second meeting but virtually first virtual meeting on the Sunday. Initially we were meeting three times a week at least then it went kind of back twice a week, weekly, fortnightly. So it's kind of dropped back a bit. But that initial engagement was imperative. A, it built relationships um, between First Ministers. Everyone could hear what the others were doing and then able to share with each other and use what others were doing. Um, there was not, the, like I said, the political lines weren't there. It was the what's in the best interest of Australians. Um, a lot of robust conversations. Not everyone agreed all the time again, but at least people talked it out and came to some kind of agreed position. Um, the other thing for us as a small jurisdiction felt that we had an equal seat at the table, whereas in COAG, it's really those bigger states that had more capacity for developing up policy positions and making a case that got more hearing, whereas... In National Cabinet, everyone's equal, so the Territory can have just as much of a say as Victoria and New South Wales, and it's been, it's been really good in actually moving issues forward rapidly as opposed to the previous COAG arrangement where issues could stay on the table for years at a time. Mm. Uh, one of the drivers of that within National Cabinet has been access to pretty much close to real-time data or as close mm -hmm. to real-time as you can get across a yeah. range of health, mental health and economic indicators. It, Can you talk a bit about how data or information, shared information, common information has driven that common understanding? Um, I think it's been vital. So we've had the AHPPC been meeting daily. I think they still are meeting daily since um, sometime in March. And having that real-time data where they've worked through a position and come to us with the latest health advice has helped us. So we've always stuck to the, well, what's the health advice? We're not making decisions based on personal biases or, or things that would uh, benefit one jurisdiction and not another. We're actually basing it on common information that we all have. Same with the economic data. We all had that Australian economic data from the Commonwealth Treasury and that helped us form our own policies and proposals and responses based on the data we were getting from the Commonwealth Treasury. Have you found that it's, um, it's changed the willingness even within a jurisdiction to share data between departments and then between jurisdictions for the Commonwealth to share data with the states and territories, but also states and territories to share data with the Commonwealth? And, uh, sorry, I, I say that because I, I was yeah. in, I did COAG for quite a few years too. Yeah. And, and very hard to get information. And what you can see as an outsider here, a lot more information is being shared. Absolutely. A absolutely. So we're, we're getting data and information straight away. There's much less barriers to that. I think internally in the jurisdiction, we're probably about the same. We've always been pretty good at sharing between ourselves. Um, the... Between jurisdiction sharing, while it's always been an option, again, it's happened on an ad hoc basis. You know, you, you had a particular issue, you might contact a counterpart and see if they had the same issue. We're all much closer now. We're actually in pretty regular contact at, at my level, my colleagues, and certainly First Ministers are in regular contact as well. And that it's not just the, 
the national cabinet meetings irregularly like that, but we're actually in contact by by phone, by other meetings, text messages, whatever. And I think that's actually helped us share a lot more. How do you lock that in? And partly it's on relationships, but can you do something system-wise to lock it in? It, it's really good question because, again, people will fall back into old habits. I think this, if we can keep National Cabinet, I think that will help us keep locked in because it's very agile, it's very quick. We're making decisions and as a First Secretary's group, we need to be very connected to make sure that that, that will actually keep working, producing results. So I think if we can keep National Cabinet, everything that cascades down from that will will stay in place. On the issue of relationships, can you reflect a bit on uh, relationships between the public sector or the public service and government or between ministers, uh, so public servants and ministers, and how that's changed? Has that changed at all? Again, for the Territory, because we're so small, our interaction with ministers is always very close. You know, you can pop down to Woolies and bump into three ministers while you're doing your weekly grocery shop. So I don't know that that's changed a great deal for us. Okay. Well, before you start to bring it to an end, if there's anything else you'd like to say, I've got one more question, but any any other remarks or observations you'd like to make? No, I just think, um, I mean, it's been a really tough year for so many people, but I do think that we're going to take a lot of lessons out of this that we can take forward and actually have a much better relationship between government and the community ongoing and hopefully not drop back to that distrust that was had really grown to quite an unmanageable level pre-COVID. Yeah. Can I ask you then, as the final question, uh, your own, this is a personal question about Jody. Uh, what you learned about yourself, what you discovered about yourself in this crisis? Hmm, that's a very good question. Um, look, I've been very lucky. All my family's here. So I've had that family support while we've been working very long hours, you know, long hours through the week and, and lots of, and, and weekends generally, no holidays. Um, I've had that family support, so I've been lucky. A lot of my colleagues whose families are in other jurisdictions have suffered in terms of not being able to see family for eight, nine months, ten months, um, and I've been able to see that effect on people. I think for myself, um, just just recognising that we do make mistakes and we can learn from those mistakes has been probably good practice and also just working that much more closely with a whole range of colleagues and recognising you don't have all the answers yourself. You can actually reach out and get some help from others. Thank you very much. Um, That's great insight. So thank you for your time, Jodie. But can I also no thank problem. you for your service to the Northern Territory and to Australia? Uh, for thank what you've you, done. Gordon. Yeah. Uh, so that's been a great conversation. Thanks very much for that. Oh, well, it's a pleasure and, and it's a real honour. Uh, so thank you for another conversation, fascinating conversation. This is the last national perspective for the year. So to you, audience, so thank you for listening and I hope you have a, a, a very nice uh, end of year and happy Christmas and, and New Year. And look forward to the next episode of A National Perspective with another Australian public sector leader in 2021. Until then, bye for now.